For those who don't know, my name is Ephraim. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm really delighted to be sharing this afternoon at our Christmas service. Five days till Christmas. <laughs> That's all right. So, um, this weekend has been quite a challenge, I'll be honest. Um, because lots of things have been going wrong. So on Friday night, our sound desk, um, sound desk that's kind of all whizzy and bangy and moves by itself and all that, it just packed up and um, came in yesterday to fix it and it couldn't be fixed. <laughs> so we were looking forward to a service with no sound today at all whatsoever and um, thank the Lord he had a ram in the bushel, as they say, for anyone who knows what that means. <laughs> he, had a, he had a plan in hand and so we had to get uh, another desk and set it up and so that was a bit of a mission and um, in between times um, I found myself at um, A&E um, yesterday morning for a, not for myself but um, helping someone else and so it's, it's been one of those weekends already but you know when you just get the feeling that God's in control and Everything is according to his divine will and purpose. And nothing else matters. As long as you're walking in the will of the Lord. You know? And so, it's a blessing. Now, we are concluding our series, The Great Giveaway. This is the final installment. If you've not um, been keeping up with us over the last few weeks as we've gone through this, then I invite you to visit our podcast on iTunes, where you'll be able to learn of the previous um, three episodes, um, the giving of a great kingdom, the giving of a great king, and the giving of a great gift. And it's Christmas. I've often struggled over the years, and I've confessed this. For those who have been around any length of time, you've heard me confess this. I've often struggled over the years as to what to do with Christmas, because Christmas has changed a lot. I don't know if you would agree. Would you agree that Christmas has changed a lot? So Christmas for me when I was growing up was one thing, um, even when I first became a Christian. And then it kind of, um, it, it, it just lost definition. It's like it went from HD to black and white. And um, I kind of struggled with that over the years. And I feel like the Lord has been renewing my passion um, for Christmas. Christmas is taken as the time that Jesus' birth is celebrated. Now, no one is saying that it is the day that he was born. That's often one of the first objections you hear to Christmas, right? One of the first excuses people raise to have actually make Christmas about something else. Well, Jesus wasn't born on December the 25th. Well, can somebody tell me when the Queen's birthday is? April what? Because she's got about three. Nobody complains about celebrating the bank holiday of the Queen's birthday, you know, even though it's not her actual birthday. It's a moment in history a moment in time that has been set apart throughout centuries to mark the birth of Christ. And if there is anyone whose birth ought to be marked, is it not Jesus? Amen? So, we mark the birth. Mark it. Mark my words. We're going to mark it today. Amen. And so we give thanks that we're able to, that we have reason to mark the birth of Christ. 
But Christmas has changed. Um, hmm. Some of you will have seen these scenes. Um, I don't know if they look any, in any way familiar. This is a crush. <laughs> yeah, some of you are hoping that your face is in that moment. <laughs> and um, this, this was the scenes of Black Friday last year. Black Friday. The day when the um, pre-Christmas sale kind of hits and they, they give all kinds of ridiculous, ridiculous discounts to the point where they're considered giveaways. And so it was quite, actually, it was quite horrible to see the scenes. People were actually, I mean, it was, it was beyond scavenging. They were fighting. These are, these are some of the more calm pictures that I picked out. I know we're going to have children in here, so I didn't pick out any of the more um, it's extreme ones where people are actually fighting and stamping on one another. And I'm, is this what Christmas has become? Is this the giveaway that people are looking for? Well, the reality is Christmas, the Christmas giveaway is more than just the gifts you receive or the gifts you give or the, the giveaways you're able to grab hold of and lay your hands on in the stores. It's even more than all of the noble, charitable works that go on during Christmas time. See, a lot of people, especially as Christians, we like to bash on Christmas and what it's not and how it's not the same anymore. And back in my day, we all used to go to church on Christmas morning and da da da. And we like to, to, to bang on about how commercialized it's come and so on. But actually, let's be fair and let's be real. There is a great deal of good that also goes on at Christmas. Amen? We see, there's a crisis. Any of you guys familiar with the organization Crisis? And they have Crisis at Christmas. I think it's um, 10,000 volunteers that they have volunteering throughout the Christmas season. 10,000 people giving up their Christmas day to help the homeless and the needy during the Christmas period. Now that's a good thing, is it not? Something to rejoice at. Something to celebrate. And yet, in all of those good deeds that are being shared and all that is being given in that sense, there is an even greater giveaway to be considered. And so we're going to consider that today. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for your faithfulness in giving us opportunity to celebrate your son in this way. And we ask that, Lord, you would encourage our hearts and focus our minds, that you would stir our passion for you afresh and anew, that, Lord, Christmas wouldn't be just uh, another um, festive season during the course of our year, but that, Lord, we would be able to appreciate, we would be able to appreciate this season, as we seek to appreciate you. Thank you, Lord God, for your goodness and your faithfulness. Amen. Now, I mentioned Black Friday previously. 
and how for some people that's what Christmas has come to mean. For some people, they're glad for the holiday from work. And um, I, don't, I, heard a, I heard a new phrase actually yesterday um, that was associated with last Friday. And, and it was called Mad Friday. I don't know if any of you heard that phrase. But the last Friday before the Christmas week is considered Mad Friday. Anybody know why that's considered Mad Friday? Mad Christmas parties, drinking. So a lot of people break up for work on the last Friday before Christmas, right? And so you have all of your work parties. And you know they say what goes on at the work party stays on Facebook. <laughs> New Year, certain um, P45s will be issued as they scroll through the evidence. <laughs> but it's about the work parties. And they said, you know what? They said that on Mad Friday, 2.3 billion pounds would be spend on, spent sorry, on alcohol. Now, let me just qualify that. Not just spent on alcohol in a general sense, but specifically spent on alcohol in relation to public consumption in pubs, clubs, and bars. So alcohol consumed in public, 2.3 billion pound would be spent on that day alone. That's not including the amount of money that people are spending stocking up their drinks cabinets at home. That actually astounded me. Like, surely that's enough alcohol to refloat the Titanic. 2.3 billion pound on alcohol. Imagine what you could do with a tenth of that. Listen, I, don't, I, can't, I can't even do the maths to tell you what a tenth is. I just know that it's a whole heap of money. <laughs> it is said that alcohol abuse is costing the National Health Service six billion pounds a year. Six, not million, you know. Not six billion a decade. Six billion pounds a year. And so, in this Christmas season, often people will seek to escape through raving and drinking and enjoying themselves. Now, you know, in Ecclesiastes, it says there is nothing new under the sun. And the Bible is absolutely true. Absolutely true. And as we arrive at Isaiah chapter 7, we see that actually... This is nothing new because we read these verses here or this verse here, which is the very commonly cited verse at Christmas and quite rightly so. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
and we hear this verse and it has some kind of familiarity to us, but we don't appreciate the context. Because as this verse is shared by the prophet Isaiah making a declaration to the king of the time, Ahaz, the king of Judah, we see that the nation was enjoying much the same culture that we see enjoyed at Christmas today. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, we are told that the people were raving. Verse 12, the people were drinking and getting drunk. It says they were rushing early in the morning. Sound familiar? When they, they, they um, put off license and, and pubs to all day opening. I went to meet someone for breakfast the other day, a couple of weeks ago. And um, we, we went over to the um, local eatery. I say eatery because there's me thinking it was a, just like maybe like a cafe or something. It was a pub. You know, you know them, um, I, I just might have mentioned the name because it makes it easier, the Weatherspoons. So we went in there and I'm thinking, okay, so they do breakfast and everything. And all I see is the pumps are open, people's pulling pipes. 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> no, that's morning. That's not lunchtime. That, pulling pints. 11 o'clock in the morning. And I was just like, it, it, it just struck me because I've not really been a part of that culture, so I don't really understand that. And, you know, that's how people function. But then I, I wondered, and we, we, we're trying to appreciate why we have such a problem with drinking in this country. I remember the era of the lads, and then it became the era of the ladette. And how the ladies were drinking the guys under the table and becoming champions. And yet, as we look at Isaiah chapter 5, we see the same thing being communicated. In verses 22, it talks about the fact that people were drinking heroes. Drinking champions, champions at mixing drinks. Shaken and not stirred. And so, what am I saying? I'm saying that in the time of Isaiah, they were experiencing a culture much like ours today. At the point when this declaration was made, of the coming of God to earth, it was being spoken into a culture much like ours, where people had forsaken God. In chapter 2 of Isaiah and verse 6, it tells us that the people had abandoned the covenant of God for spiritism and the occult. There were a people who were prosperous and self-assured in their lifestyles. They had money to burn on alcohol because they were comfortable much like we are here in the West. And so, even the notion of honoring God, even the, the notion of serving God and worshipping Him for His goodness in revealing Himself to mankind, that was far removed then as it, was, as it is for us now.
And so I encourage you to read the early chapters over this Christmas period. I encourage you to read Isaiah 1 through 9. And make that uh, an act of devotion in the midst of this festivities. And get an understanding of the context and the background of this declaration. Because the impact for them was as significant as it is for us today. And even though ours has a different type of significance, they were a people who were prosperous, they were comfortable, but they were fearful. They were prosperous, they were comfortable, but they were fearful. And again, that's so true today. We hear of the the issues in Syria and ISIS and terrorism and all of these headlines. And there are many who are very concerned and if not fearful. And yet we see in chapter 7 that Syria weren't new to the headlines. Because this southern nation of Judah were under the threat of Syria and their northern brothers, Israel. So Israel had been split into two. And so when we hear the name Israel in this context, it's not stated as being Israel, the whole country, as we understand it in Jesus' times where Jesus walked. But there was a division between the people. And so the southern people, Judah, as distinct from Israel, were under the threat of Israel and Syria, who all were under threat of the big boys, the big bullies, the Assyrians. So there was a lot of political turmoil and insecurity at that time. And God's response to that whole picture is given right here. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is what God had to offer. This is what God has to offer us. Now, first of all, I want to highlight the fact that we know it states this is a sign that is being given by God. So, as you may have heard us say before, signs are not an end in themselves. You don't leave your house to go and drive in your car to look at a road sign and then turn back home. The sign points you to something beyond itself. And so God is saying, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you something that is going to point to the bigger picture, to the, to the ultimate destination. God goes on to say, oh, I, I want to highlight that, this is God declaring that he himself is going to give this sign. So this isn't something that is going to be merely communicated through the mouth of the prophets, but this is going to be God's work himself. God spoke through the prophets. God worked through the prophets. But there were times when God unilaterally 
independently and exclusively acted in his own power to bring about certain occurrences and events. We see this communicated in Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That was one means of communication. But, conjunction, contrast. I wish I had learned that when I was in school doing GCSEs. But, in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His son. This is the son who had been predicted in Isaiah 7, 14. And so, the giving of the son was a work of God himself. And as we go on, we see that it had to be a work of God himself. Because what's being proposed is utterly mad. It's unthinkable that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, there are some that would say, listen, Pastor E, I'm sure you've heard that the term virgin in those days was often used for one who was an unmarried woman. So, that doesn't necessarily mean that she had never had relations. She had never known a man in that way. It could be just that she was an unmarried woman who was giving birth. Now, there are a few problems with that. First and foremost, that would be constituted as fornication or adultery. And so that would be to suggest that God is going to use an adulterous slash fornicating relationship to present a sign to the people. And not just to present a sign, but as the means through which his son would come into the world. Completely and utterly in contradiction to the law that he's given through Moses. So that's one strike against it. Two, if it were merely an unmarried woman who had a, 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 an adulterous relationship with a man and she conceived and bore a son, where would be the sign in that? What's, I mean... You have to understand, adultery wasn't as, uh, was, wasn't as common in those days as it is today. Because in those days, if you were found guilty of adultery, what would happen to you? They would stone you. It was not a casual occurrence. People were not promiscuous as they are in our times. Even so, it happened. And if a child was born in that scenario, there would be no surprises there. There's no sign. There's no wow. There's no ooh which is exactly being communicated here. And so we recognize that this work would have to be achieved by God himself because this speaks of a virgin conceiving and having a son. Now, there are those who would say, you know what? I and I reckon said, that has been, I'm in character now, yeah? Just, just so you didn't know. There are those who would say, I and I know that that is just, 
the Christians taking stories from Babylonian and Egyptian heritage. That's old news. There's nothing new there. See, Byron's laughing because he knows what I'm saying. <laughs> Barry used to say that back in the day. <laughs> no, but, but, but there are those who would say Christianity has stolen this story which has already taken place and transpired historically in, quote-unquote, the black community. Whether that be Egyptian or Babylonian or whatever, they'd say, this is a, this is a, this is a stolen idea. All right, let's just deal with that horse, that, that sacred cow. Let's just kill that today by God's grace and mercy. First of all, we do understand that this story existed pre-Christianity. Um, there are um, images here that are commonly associated with Mary and the virgin birth. The, these images are, are often entitled Mary, Mother of God, or Mother of God. And you see these images here. I wish it could be brighter still. Um, here's another one. So, but I don't know if you can see, like, oh, my days. In this image, right, the child has his hand up like this in, in a kind of Pope-like pose. Yeah? So the, it's obviously an infant, but it suggests that he kind of knows what he's about. And you see the kind of halo-looking thing behind his head and the halo behind the, the head of the mother. And that the child's got his hand like this. Okay. Look at this next one. Similarly, fingers out in a, in a Pope-like pose, the child. Another image commonly associated with Mary, mother of God. Here we see black Mary and black baby in a pose that looks affectionate, but almost too affectionate. There's a reason for that. So, these stories existed. These images pre-existed Christianity. In fact, there's a statue in the British Museum. Yeah, hopefully that makes it a bit better even. There's a statue in the British Museum of an almost sphinx-like... Um, actually, I think I've got the picture an almost sphinx-like character holding a baby on her lap. Here we go. See what I'm saying? <laughs> I'll tell you about the sound desk, right? Look. All right, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. Don't worry. There we go. And... This is an image taken from a ancient, this is an image of a statue created in ancient Egypt. Um, there's a certain um, consistency with the mother of God theme in the paintings. Now, in ancient Egypt, they had these stories. These stories of Isis and Horus. And basically, Isis was a demigod female demigod 
who was, who was married to Osiris. This isn't anything ISIS, anything to do with the terrorist ISIS. Yeah? And ISIS was said to have married Osiris, who was her brother, but Osiris was killed. And he was chopped into pieces and spread throughout the land by his brother, another demigod called Set. And so Isis, in her power, was able to resurrect Osiris. So here we have claims of resurrections have taken place previously. Resurrect Osiris and therefore go on to father a child by him known as Horus. So this now is the image of Isis and Horus. And Horus is meant to be the embodiment of Osiris, the embodiment of the father. Say, so, okay, so this is the story. This is a story of, of myth and legend. Um, there are no historical dates. There are no historical places. There are no historical narratives that give detail to this apart from that which is legendary and mythical. Okay. Prior to that, there was an occasion, and this is, um, relates to Genesis 10, where you see mention of Nimrod. There was a similar legend being um, circulated about Nimrod and Semir- Semir- Thank you. Semiramis and Tammuz. Nimrod and Semiramis and Tammuz. So Nimrod was the male, Semiramis the woman, Tammuz the son. But actually, it is said that Semiramis, who was married to Nimrod, was actually also married to Tammuz, who was actually also Nimrod. Confusing, right? So basically, she was married to her son. That's how the story goes. All right, so it's, it's, it's out there in public domain. You can examine these things. So she was basically married to her son, who then had um, great um, notoriety and nobility. And this was supposed to have come about by means of the fact that Semiramis, um, that Nimrod had... had um, yeah, I don't even know how to explain that because it's very difficult. But basically, again, there's supposed to be this sense of death and then her having this supernatural son who embodies the dad. And then so there we have Tammuz, who is okay, also a.k.a. Nimrod. So you can see that these, these, these stories are far from straightforward. They're far from logical and they're far from factual. It's absolutely clear to anyone who's reasonable that actually they bear no resemblance to Jesus and the the Mary account of her conception and birth, which is actually, apart from the nature of her conception, very run-of-the-mill and very everyday. But I want to take it a step further back than that because these stories, people would say, well, why do these stories exist then? Why do they exist? Why is it that we see these statues and these pictures and these fantasies being played out if there's no truth in it? And I'm saying, okay, there is truth in it. 
Not actual truth in the events themselves. The events never happened, but they were inspired by a true truth, by a real fact. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we see the seed, we see the, the kernel, we see the inspiration behind these fantasies. That even Genesis chapter 10, prior to the flood, um, prior to the, the Babel, sorry, and the separation of, of the peoples around the world, they had this fantasy story surrounding Nimrod. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God speaking to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. This is just after the incident that is known to be called the fall of humanity, the fall of mankind. And so God made Adam, God made Eve. He placed them in the garden. He gave them a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they dis disobeyed the command. They only had one law. People struggling with ten. They had one. And yet, lacking divinity, lacking perfection, they put themselves before God. And that's all it takes to sin, to put ourselves before God. And they put themselves before God and they, they, they infected the planet. They infected the universe. They infected all of human history with this poison that is sin. And at that point, God here declares that there will be a savior. There will be a redeemer. There will be a rescuer who will destroy Satan and his works. And here it's spoken of as being the offspring of the woman because he's specifically speaking to Eve. I will put enmity, sorry, speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring, that's the devil's offspring, and her offspring. And that word offspring that's um, used in this translation is also used, um, they also use the term seed. And so as Pastor Rob mentioned earlier, we consider that God is saying that the woman who normally, biologically speaking, doesn't carry the seed, but carries the egg, which the seed fertilizes, will have seed in herself and bring forth a child that shall bruise the head of the serpent, so crush the head of the serpent, and yet the serpent will bruise his heel. And so this story of this seed, this offspring, circulated throughout the first people. And you have to remember, if you're starting right at the beginning with the first two people, you have a very small population of the world, right? And so the story is able to very easily be carried 
as the population increases. Because the story started at the beginning. Before there were other people. And so people were born onto the planet and they met the story. The story already existed. And so there's no surprise that they began to fantasize as to what this might look like and what this might mean. And so, in my mind, it's very clear that Isis and Horus and Semiramis, they're all fantasies of what would come to pass. They're all speculative projections of what would come to pass. And so, regardless of any similarities that the story of Christ's immaculate conception, the, the, the story of Christ's sinless, virgin birth would actually bear to those past fantasies, we recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment. He alone is the fulfillment. And we see this attested by God through the mouth of the writers of the New Testament. Because at the time of Christ, they declared that his coming was in fulfillment of that which was predicted 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah. They attested, they, they verified it by the Spirit of God. These are men who gave their life, who signed their testimony with their own blood as they were killed for holding faith in Christ. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, you see, the thing is this. If it were such that those aged fantasy stories were the fulfillment of what God was talking about in Genesis 3.15, how is it none of them are declared to be God with us? How is it that there's no evidence that any of those characters, any of those individuals were actually God with us? You see, when it says Emmanuel, it's not saying like people read that and then say, but how comes his name was Jesus then? And his name were Emmanuel. I mean, Emmanuel might ask why his name weren't Emmanuel. <laughs> it's not speaking necessarily of his name by which he would be known um, by which he would be called, his name on his birth certificate. But it was speaking of his reputation, the name that he would have among the people, that he is God with us, that the people would know him by reputation to be God with us. And so we see the, the testimony of Matthew. Writing in the time of Christ. That Jesus of Nazareth is he who is God with us. We see this written by John. In John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word. So the word already existed in the beginning. Before there was a beginning, the word was. And when the beginning happened, the word was already there. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word, verse 14, became flesh and lived among us. So this is Matthew and this is John. Let's hear the words of Peter, one of Jesus' followers. When asked, who do men say I am? Peter turns around and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter recognized that Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy. Declaring him to be the son of the living God. And to say that he was the son of the living God in their culture meant that they were recognizing that he shared the same qualities of God. You know, people say, you know, like father, like son. So you're a dead stamp. Are you a your father, you know? You're, you look just like your papa. Some people say, I don't, know, I don't know which is the right term because for years I grew up saying spitting image. You're the spitting image. Some people say splitting image. Maybe it was splitting image and it became spitting image because people just didn't hear right. <laughs> but you get the idea. And so all of that is understanding is being communicated in this. They're not just saying it casually. Uh, he's the son of God. You can never say that in that culture without it having the inference and the implication that he is the bearer of the qualities of God. A Roman centurion. Not even a follower, not even Jewish. Turns around at the crucifixion. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. These are the men who just killed him for that profession, for that testimony. They killed him for that. And even the Jews said, no, 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 no. Don't put that over his head on, on the, on the um, death certificate that, that he's the son of God. Put up there that he said he was the son of God. So they knew the de debate. They knew the politics that was going on around Jesus. They knew. They had no, they had no um, obligation or allegiance to him. They just killed him, finished him. And yet... Standing there, the testimony of a Roman centurion. Truly, this was the Son of God. And this ain't just some emotional guy, you know, caught in the moment, caught up in his feelings. This is a hardback soldier who just administered the death penalty without flinching. Listen to the words of Thomas. As he witnessed the resurrected Jesus who appeared before them, he fell to his knees and cried out, My Lord, my God. Now you don't understand. In first century Judaism, if that ain't true, that's blasphemy. 
ultimate blasphemy to call a human, a, a man, a mere man, God. Even the angels, when they appeared and people bowed down to worship them, like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't do that out here. Like, get up and fix up yourself because I'm not the one to be worshipped. And that's angels. Jesus received the praise and declaration of men as being Emmanuel, God with us. This is overwhelming evidence in the mouth of a multitude of witnesses. If this was a, a, a law court, case closed. You imagine you stand up in court, and I've just pulled out, what, five different people? One, two, three, four, five. Five different people, different individuals, different backgrounds, different professions. You're in court. <laughs> facing the charge of, of, charge of, of um, fraud or, or impersonation. And you're impersonating God. And people stand up, five of them stand up and give clear testimony against you that you're not God. And they give evidence of your, your flaws and your faults. You're going to go to jail. Just two, two eyewitness testimonies. One eyewitness testimony that's credible is, is sufficient. We understand that this case is being tried in the court of humanity. The evidence is there for all to see. And even beyond his time, we see in Titus 2 verse 13, the Apostle Paul, who regarded himself as a, 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 an apostle who was born out of due season. He wasn't a, an apostle at the time when the others were walking around with Jesus. He came later on and got sworn in. And yet, he declares this as he exhorts the church and he exhorts Titus as a young elder. He says, we walk in these things waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus had the reputation of Emmanuel, God with us. And truly, this is the great gift as predicted by Isaiah, 700 years before his coming. A prediction that has no statistical probability. There are, it's, it's, it's not as if you could kind of go to um, Paddy Power or one of them um, betting shops and ask them, to, like, you know, they, they make up odds for everything, right? They make up odds for everything. What color is Kate Middleton's dress going to be? And all sorts of... You could never go to them and say, um, what's the odds that a virgin will have a baby? They will run you out of their office. We don't take those odds. 
She's, she's, she's clinically proven a virgin and she's going to have a baby. No, we're going to leave that one alone. And yet, this is the sign that God has given. Now, do you recognize the sign today? Do you, like many men, see the sign and drive on past, thinking you know where you're going anyway? I'm guilty all the time. My wife often says to me, I hope you're not taking me on on another one of your long shortcuts. Because I really think I know where I'm going. But the sign says, don't watch the sign. It's all good, you know. So I know where I'm going. I know my roads. As I drive into a dead end. I'm not even joking. And the thing is, so many people view signs. And you can't afford to view this sign in that way. You cannot afford to just drive on by as if you know where you're going and it's all good. You've got it on, it's, it, you're in control. Because if you miss this sign, you miss life. You are merely eternal death waiting to happen. Now, It's interesting because when we look at this statement here, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. It's quite possible that you could read that, therefore the Lord will give you a sign himself. And if you put a comma before himself, it adds another nuance of understanding. You see, we recognize that this wasn't just God giving an abstract sign, but this was God declaring the giving of himself. God declared the giving of himself. God came to earth in human form and lived among us. And not only did he come in human form and live among us, but he died among us. Isaiah goes on in later chapters to depict the conclusion of the life of the son as a human. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. You just look at Christmas and you see how people got no regard. It's like one brother wrote a song. There's this, there's this um, Christmas album, right? And you, you might not be really into Christmas albums. And I, I wasn't really into Christmas albums too tough. But this is definitely one of the best Christmas albums that you could get. It's called Gift Rap. And he wrote a song called, It's Your Birthday. I'm sure it was actually before the 50 Cent, so don't get it twisted. And the song was all about the fact that everybody was having a birthday party and celebrating this birthday party, but the, the, the person whose party it was wasn't invited. Imagine that, you're having a party. Everybody's having a party in your name and you're not invited. And the song basically spoke of Jesus. 
and the fact that Christmas time, everyone's having a celebrating his birthday, having parties, and but Jesus ain't invited. We esteemed him not, and yet surely he has borne our griefs. He has taken upon himself our griefs. God himself came with us. And even now we can know that God is with us in our trials. In Hebrews 4 says we have a high priest who can be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, old school, who, who can relate, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, trials and tribulations and temptations. Jesus knows because he is the God who is with us. And your joys and your triumph, he knows. And your pains and your sorrows, he knows. Because he is the God who is with us. And he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. It was because of us he was struck. He was smitten by God and afflicted. Even in the new translation, they use the old language because it just sounds so grand. But it means that he was beaten, he was battered, he was bruised and he was killed by God for you and for me. God gave himself. I saw this lady in the magazine last week. And um, her name's Alex Brown. And she um, is known as an, an altruistic kidney donor. So she donated one of her kidneys to help save someone's life. Um, very often, um, organ donation takes place after a person dies. The fact that somebody would donate one of their healthy working organs whilst alive is an unusual thing. And in the article it said that she had spoke to her family about giving one of her good organs to someone to help them. And her family tried to talk her down. They tried to convince her not to. Imagine that. Now she went ahead and somebody was able to live because of her organ donation. And yet she was just given a part of herself. She said since then, her life has, has nothing's changed. Her life's been fine. She's been able to live life and do all the things that she desires to do. And that's wonderful. Having given a part of herself. Jesus gave his all. He, he didn't just give a, an organ. He gave his complete organism in order that you might have life. He lost his. He gave his in order that you might have life. And this is why he came. And so, do you heed the sign? That points to the greatest giveaway ever. James says in chapter 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights. Jesus came from heaven and he is the ultimate of good gifts. He is the ultimate of perfect gifts. Only good for you. Complete, lacking nothing. Life is only found in him. And in Isaiah chapter 1, we read in those earlier verses what God's call was to the people of that time who were drinking and raving and reveling. God said to them, as he says to us today, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. See, there is that call to return to God. To make him first. That our hearts would be given to him. You see, the things that we do are a reflection and an expression of our hearts that are not submitted to God. And so the issue is not merely to modify our lives and make it better, but to change our hearts by submitting it to God and allowing him to give us the great gift that we heard of last week. The great gift of a new you. To be born again. Under the great king, Jesus who administers justice rightly and invites us to be a part of his great kingdom, an eternal kingdom, one that is complete and utter paradise. You see, all of those benefits only come through relationship with the person who is the savior, Jesus Christ. And so of all the gifts that you get this Christmas, the greatest gift is Jesus. And furthermore, the greatest gift that you could give is Jesus. But you must first have received him. I'm going to invite the team to come back. And I challenge you um, to take time in this Christmas season to reflect on Christ. That Christmas wouldn't be just another cliche. That Christmas wouldn't be just about something else, an opportunity to escape. But that Christmas would be the recognition of God giving himself in Christ. And so, you know, we're familiar with the phrases, Jesus is the reason for the season. Keep the Christ in Christmas. And um, even as believers, they can become cliches. But may we focus our hearts and remember he who was given. He who came from heaven. Philippians tells us that he humbled himself to the form of a man. You imagine the one who created the world, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power as a baby in a little animal feeding trough, 
in a country the size of Wales. Such is the goodness and greatness of God in the great gift that he's given. Let's stand. Father God, we do thank you for the giving of your great gift. Jesus, Yeshua, God with us, Emmanuel, the Savior. And we thank you, Father, that you've revealed yourself as a compassionate and loving God who would even condescend and lower yourself in the person of Christ and walk among us, having been born as a baby, vulnerable, dependent, and yet majestic and powerful. And it it blows our minds. We cannot understand it. We cannot put the two together, Lord. And we recognize that your fame has echoed throughout history, even now as we look forward to marking the occasion of your birth, Lord Jesus. We do so as, as those who look back, and yet we recognize there were those who looked forward, even fantasized, but that doesn't diminish your majesty. It doesn't diminish your work, Lord God, in revealing your son to humanity. And only him, and only through him, can we have life and life everlasting. And so we thank you, Lord, and pray that, Lord, our hearts would be encouraged to hold fast, to hold firm in our faith, and not be wavered and tossed and rocked and twisted and turned by all kinds of false information and false doctrines and teachings. Have your way, Lord, I pray among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.